my poor relationship with my mother, who didn't care, interest herself or speak to me about anything of real importance, was painful for me. For most of us males, the most crucial and important relationship we have is with our mothers, and that influences our future relationships, not only with the female gender, but relationships with people in general. My mother oppressed, depressed, and suppressed me. She knew nothing about my emotional or intellectual being, nor was she concerned about it. She never told me she loved me. Hi, this is Julie Gray, and these are the true adventures of Gidon Lev. Episode 15, Mother. It had become evident to me that, in his long life, four events were most painful for Gidon. The Holocaust, the end of his first marriage and the consequences of that, the death of Susan, and his relationship with his mother. He wrote pages and pages about his mother. But he'd written the same thing, over and over, just changing words or sentence order now and again. My mother insisted I sleep after lunch, and most of the time, I was not able to do so. So I developed a very instinctive system of faking that I am asleep, just out of fear of being punished. I also remember her absolute demand that I finish the food on my plate, including spinach, which I hated. I remember at least once when after being forced to eat it, I vomited up and mother made me eat it again, standing over me. Sometimes she made me kneel in the corner on dried peas. Mothers forcing kids to take naps and kids pretending to do so is as old as time. Kneeling on dried peas is horrible, but punishments like these were probably not uncommon a few decades ago. But forcing a child to eat his own vomit? Can that be true? My God. I asked some of Guidon's grown children how they remembered Doris. Hard, sharp, difficult. These were the words that came up. She did, though, make a particular kind of pastry Shia noted kindly that was delicious. Susan wrote a few poems about Doris. In them, she searched for compassion and understanding. But they are painful, even angry poems. One is called My Mother-in-Law, the Scorpion. Another is My Mother-in-Law, Angry. One day, Guidon took an old, broken wooden spoon out of a drawer in the kitchen. This, he explained, was the same wooden spoon that Doris used to beat him with. I very much doubted this was the actual spoon, but it didn't matter. To Guidon, it was. I actually remember the time as if it was today, when, for the first time, I physically stopped my mother from hitting me. We were standing in the hall of our house on Cranbrook Avenue in Toronto. She was prepared to hit me, for some reason or other, this time with a kachlefel, wooden spoon, and I, by this time bigger and stronger than her, pinned her hands to her side and said, No more, mother. You can punish me, you can yell at me, but no more hitting. She truly was taking aback that her little petrol would dare do this to her. 
Harris had experienced a terrible childhood trauma herself. In a painful and mysterious family dispute, when Doris was about eight years old, her parents divorced. It was ugly. There were allegations that Doris's mother, Alice, had been unfaithful to Doris's father while he had been away during World War I. Mother and daughter were separated. Alice was banished, as Guidon put it, to Vienna, some hours away from Carlo Vivari. Doris found herself without a mother for reasons she did not understand, living with a father she barely knew. There was no evidence of a custody arrangement or visitations. Thereafter, Doris saw her mother only two or three times in her lifetime. It wasn't long before Fritz, Doris's father, remarried. Together with his new wife, Elsa, he had another child, a son named Heinz. Later in life, Doris told Guidon that she loved her younger brother, Heinz, but that her stepmother, Elsa, was unloving. Eventually, Doris was sent to a boarding school in Prague. Doris had not been mothered lovingly after the age of eight. Fritz, Elsa, and Heinz all died in the Warsaw Ghetto. Guidon had long known about his mother's separation from her mother and ascribed this terrible episode as a source of Doris's, quote, oppression, depression, and suppression, end quote. What he didn't add to this calculus was the trauma, deprivation, and terror of Doris's own concentration camp experience. Her bad behavior both preceded and continued after the Holocaust, he was quick to point out. None of my attempts to emphasize that no doubt Doris's experience in Terrazin must have had an enormous impact on her shifted Guidon's pain on the subject. He seemed unwilling or unable to notice the patterns of abandonment and broken families in his lifetime. I so badly wanted for Guidon to inch toward a modicum of, if not forgiveness, at least understanding of his mother. But there are some conclusions that we just have to come to ourselves, if we ever do. Inspired by the book project, Guidon had shifted into high gear, joining a Jewish genealogy website and adding many friends on Facebook. He reconnected with cousins in Canada. One day, Guidon got a package in the mail. Inside the envelope were letters that Doris had sent to a cousin. In them, Doris wrote with pride of her Peter, a.k.a. Guidon, and extolled the merits of his wonderful wife Susan and their children. In another letter, Doris mentioned that she suffered anxiety attacks and that the past was very painful for her. This peek into Doris's thoughts surprised Guidon. He softened just a little. I do remember times when my mother was happy, joyful even, in Prague when she was working at home making hats. Sometimes she would sing. She had a beautiful voice and she loved to dance. She also had a great love for opera. This love she did instill in me.
I want to admit that I was not the most sensitive and kind son. I could and should have been, especially in my adulthood. Had I been more forgiving, probably I would have known and understood a great deal more about my mother's and my family's life. I realize this only now, a bit too late. I told Gidon it was natural that he felt anger toward his mother, but he shouldn't turn that anger into guilt. I thought he might be making some small movement in the direction of forgiving his mother and himself. For such a garrulous person, Gidon very often did not wish to speak on this particular subject, so I was always cautious when broaching the topic. Maybe she just wasn't cut out to be a mother, I offered lamely. Gidon pulled out a binder called My Mother, stuffed with photographs, notes, forms, and birthday cards from grandchildren. There were cards to Gidon and eulogies for Doris upon her death. One is from Susan. Quote, Don Juan the shaman says to Carlos Castaneda, find yourself a worthy tyrant if you want to improve your spiritual abilities and moral strength. In many ways, Softa Doris was a worthy tyrant, and I respected her for that. Doris was a survivor. She went through life as if always on the lookout, always seeking a safe landing from a stormy sea, always making sure there was a piece of wood strong enough to support her and her son through the gale, end quote. There was something else in the binder. Twelve yellowed, crinkled, handwritten pages titled Concentration Camp Years, 1941 to 1945, as written by Doris. Guidon said he'd never seen this document, yet he is a keeper of records. He had boxes and files of photographs, clippings, and papers. Had he truly never seen this? Or was his memory playing selective tricks on his mind? The 12-page letter was written in English, so I had to guess that Doris wrote it some years after the war. I had never heard anything from Doris's point of view about this chapter in Guidon's life. It was like opening a time capsule. I must admit, I was surprised by Guidon's reaction. This isn't true, he said, pointing to a paragraph. That isn't true. She just made this up. I was at a loss for words. She made it up? Wasn't Doris the grown-up in the situation? Wouldn't her memories, if anything, be more accurate than Guidon's? But Guidon was on a roll now. He spotted something else, shot up, and went to his files. He was keen to prove his mother wrong about one specific point, that his grandfather was with Guidon and Doris when they were transported to Terezin. If my grandfather was with us, he would have helped me carry my bag, Gidon sputtered, his face reddening with emotion. He would not have let me carry it so far in the snow. Gingerly, I showed him the transport paperwork again. His, his mother's, and his grandfather Alfred's. They were all on Transport M on December 14, 1941. Gidon, I said as gently as possible, your grandfather was prisoner number 339, you were prisoner number 885, and your mother was number 884. The Nazis probably separated the men from the women and children. He was there. He just wasn't with you. Guidon was experiencing a terrible emotional flashback, and I felt responsible for it. 
Angrily, he picked up a pen. I intervened. No writing on this document, Doris had written. I made a copy for him so he could correct away if that's what he was moved to do. The end of the following passage of Doris's set him off again. Quote, Through all this, we saw Ernst for a few minutes every day, and even sometimes a little longer, and he made plans for the future. That kept us going. Ernst loved his little boy so much and truly tried his best to stay alive. Ernst's father, Alfred, came down with a twisted stomach and died an awful death in Theresienstadt. Nobody operated on him. He had a heart of gold and loved us all so much. There was something in the coffee the Germans gave us which prevented the women to have their periods. Actually, it was a good thing, as we only had cold water to wash us, the children, and our laundry. Of course, we all had lice and tried the best we could to keep clean. I also came down with TB. By then, there were sick rooms established and Jewish doctors from transports helping us. I was lucky. There were two doctors from Kalo Vivari. One was our family doctor, Dr. Feldman Fisher, the other, Dr. Lowenstein. They got me into a sick room and helped me as best they could. There was one small cup of milk and a little supper every day, but no medicine. I had a cot at an open window, so there was fresh air. My Peter, who slept with me before miraculously, did not get the disease, TB, as we later found out. Those two doctors saved Peter's and my life. All the sick people had to be reported, and they were shipped to Auschwitz. Those two doctors kept my name and number from the list twice or three times. All the Jewish doctors who worked with us were later shipped out and perished. I was nearly a year in the sick room, and Ernst, as best he could, looked after Peter. End quote. It didn't happen that way. Absolutely not true, Kidon said with angry finality. I saw my father twice. But Kidon, she writes right here. She's wrong. Kidon was more than affronted, he was triggered. Doris's accounts contradicted his own memories. I was left only to surmise that for Gidon, the thought that his grandfather couldn't help him when he first arrived at the camp, and that he saw his father from time to time but had no memory of those visits, was just not bearable. One warm autumn afternoon in Tel Aviv, Gidon and I stood knee-deep in the Mediterranean. We were throwing breadcrumbs into the water as part of the Jewish New Year tradition of throwing away regrets and wrongdoings of the past year and leaving an opening for doing better in the next. Kidon had never done it, but he was game. Moments later, as we walked back over the sand, avoiding crunching over seashells, I asked Kidon what he was thinking about when he threw his bread into the water. My mother, he said a little stiffly. What about your mother? I asked a little disingenuously. Gidon knew how I wanted so badly for him to forgive Doris. I want to think about her more kindly, I guess. We clambered back up and over the concrete wall meant to keep us out of the estuary from whence we'd made our way to the sea. Don't tell anybody, Gidon said, as he held out a hand to help me up and over the rocks. Is it okay if I include this, Gidon? I asked months later. Yep, he said without skipping a beat. It seemed like a million years ago that I met Gidon Lev. Early in our acquaintance, he was bent not just on publishing a book about his life, but also having the book read by very many people, 
thousands of them, as many as possible. Maybe, he said, it would even be a movie. Gidon, the improbable warrior, was not afraid to dream big. But he also wanted validation and maybe some admiration, too. Don't we all? It's like that funeral fantasy that we all have, whether we admit it or not. The touching things people will say about us and how we affected their lives. What an inspiration we were. How it all added up to a cohesive, inspiring, uplifting story that makes sense. How fondly we will be remembered. What music should be played at said funeral? What really captures who we were? Each of us has memories that we file, rearrange, embellish, and sculpt so that we can learn from them, if we can bear to think about them at all. Maybe as an octogenarian, Guidon was able to be so honest about his life because he felt he had nothing to lose, having not just survived, but also flourished and embraced that most essential part of himself, his complicated, contradictory humanness, and made peace with it. We are all inventions of ourselves in the end, and curators of our narratives. Being so enmeshed in Guidon's life was not always easy for me. I sometimes felt a loss of my own identity. Eventually, I was able to recognize that that among the lessons for me in this experience was that the infinitely complex process of being alive and finding meaning in our stories was generous and inclusive. Guidon had not studied spirituality or feel-good books or philosophies the way I had so tirelessly in my search for comfort, meaning, and maybe even a helpful aha moment or shortcut. He didn't have any books by Jack Kornfeld or Tibetan Buddhist nun Pema Chodron on his bookshelf. He hadn't read Eckhart Tolle or listened to the inspiring TED Talks by Brene Brown. Guidon, it seemed, didn't overthink. He just lived. He considered life a great gift without ascribing to any belief of pop theories, cosmic sensibilities, or wishful thinking. He's just happy to wake up every morning. It's that simple. Guidon is a mischievous person, a man drawn to risks, to jerry-rigging things, to making things work in the moment. He likes to get away with things, to beat the system and the odds. Having experienced his childhood in a concentration camp, Guidon had to behave accordingly to survive. He had to fall in, to make do, to adapt. He was inculcated with both a sense of order and discipline and violent outcomes, but also with a kind of survival thinking get what you can, and run. This sometimes made him a bit reckless. He rarely, if ever, experienced life according to his individual needs. He adapted to each situation and in some ways became a bit of a zealot figure, morphing into whatever was necessary at the moment. I'm quite sure this impish quality of Guidon's is much more endearing when he isn't your dad. He told me that when he was a young father, he had a temper and did not countenance laziness or disorderliness. Dor vidor, from generation to generation, our history follows us, our wounds are handed down. In winter 2018, Guidon gave me a four-sided silver ring. On one side was a heart. On another was Guidon's name. On another, the date. On the last side, the word Hineni, here I am. Because of Guidon, I am constantly reminded that life is fleeting and that real love is rare and that every moment spent living fully, the ups and the downs, is a moment well spent. 
I will benefit for the rest of my life with lessons learned, patience taught, and memories made with Gidon Lev. He's taught me to slow down and to be kinder, more patient, and more deliberate in what I say and do. He's taught me to be both more shrewd and more trusting. Gidon gets scared sometimes, it's true. It frightens him when he doesn't feel good, which isn't that often, thus the fear. No matter what life threw at Gidon, he was willing to show up for whatever came next. Setback, Schmetback. Carrying on is as natural as breathing to Gidon. That, I realized, was what I wanted to learn from him. That willingness to keep creating and living no matter what had happened before or could happen again. Gidon's story is not just that of a Holocaust survivor. His is the story of a man who lived and the people lucky enough to have known him. I count myself inexpressibly lucky to have been one of those people. Gidon's eldest daughter, Maya, grew up in California with her mother, Naomi, and her other siblings. Yanai grew up in Israel with his father, Gidon, and his other siblings. Susan raised Yanai as her own son, and the bond between them was a deep one. Gidon, Susan, and Naomi made sure that Maya and Yanai got to see each other from time to time and to know their half-siblings living on the other side of the globe. It wasn't always easy, but there is a loving and enduring bond among all of Gidon's offspring today. Gidon and Naomi don't see or speak to each other very often, but they seem to have made some effort to heal and move beyond the past. If the lives of the children they had together are any indication, that's exactly what has happened and more. Gidon's relationship with Maya is a loving and tender one, and he enjoys loving relationships with all of his kids. Four of the six Lev offspring live in Israel, and Gidon regularly sees them. Gidon has 15 grandchildren and two great-granddaughters. We never did get to the bottom of the dated pendant with the emblem of Terezin on it that Gidon's father gave to his mother before he was sent to Auschwitz. We'll never know what the date on the pendant meant or how Ernst was able to come by it. Through Doris's testimony, we confirmed that Gidon's childhood family doctor, Dr. Feldman Fisher, was indeed imprisoned in Terezin. We have found no record of his fate. A black marble memorial plaque memorializing Gidon's father, grandparents, and other relatives who died in the Holocaust can now be found on the wall of the new Jewish cemetery in Ziskov, Prague. It includes a special name, Terezi Lo, Gidon's grandmother, whose actual burial site is either lost among the vines or was looted and used to pave a public square in Prague, will never know for sure. Gidon's mother, Doris, is buried on a hillside overlooking Netzerat Elite. Gidon has not visited her grave in some time, but together, we shall. The wooden spoon that Gidon said Doris beat him with has mysteriously disappeared. On March 3, 2020, on Gidon's 85th birthday, just before the global pandemic that would make such things impossible, we went ziplining in the Judean hills outside of Jerusalem. Gidon went first, and his delighted laughter echoed off the canyon walls as he flew over the rocks and between the trees. I buckled up and followed him. If you've enjoyed this episode, subscribe and follow for more. And don't forget to leave a review. If you'd like to read The True Adventures, it is available everywhere you buy books online. To learn more about Gidon Lev, go to www.thetrueadventures.com 
and be sure to follow Gidon on social media. Thanks to our sound designers, Andrew Mock and Victoria Sampson. Music composed by Nigel Groom and Adi Goldstein. Toda Rabah, Eliran, for being the voice of young Gidon. <laughs>